Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is sports author David Finoli. David has written over 34 books dealing with his lifelong love affair for Pittsburgh sports. His books discuss the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Steelers, the Penguins, and college powerhouses such as Pitt and Duquesne University. Tonight we will be discussing his future newest release, which he co-wrote with Chris Fletcher, Frank Garland, Tom, and Tim Rooney, titled Pittsburgh Sports in the 1970s, Tragedies, Triumphs, and Championships, a loving tribute to the golden age of Pittsburgh sports, where the Steel City experienced the ecstasies of winning multiple World Series titles and Super Bowls and one college football national championship. David, welcome back to the show. I'd like to start off by asking you, what makes the greater Pittsburgh area such a great sports town? Well, I'll tell you what, there, there's a, just a passion, a love, and a community. Um, if you're from Pittsburgh, um, you know, you, you, are, you suffer together, you, you celebrate together. And, and one of the weirdly great things about it, um, when, when the steel industry collapsed uh, in the 1970s, which is a big part of this because the, these um, these teams kind of resurrected what would have been a depressed area um, in the 1970s. But so many people ended up moving away, and it's given the advent of the Steeler Bar, of the, the Pirate Bar, um, the Penguin Bars, in just about every major city where no matter where you travel, you look that up and you know there's going to be at least a Steeler bar and a Penguin bar in, a, in, in the various cities where, where um, Pittsburghers uh, collect and, and just celebrate together. Now, how long did it take for you and your colleagues to write this book, David? Um, I'd say it was a good six to seven months um, between the time we signed the contract and the time we turned in the, uh, um, the final manuscript. Um, it's a little shorter when, when you have things to break up a little bit. Was it difficult divvying up what stories, what each of you and your colleagues had to tell? I mean, were there any stories that ended up on the cutting room floor? What was the process to figure out what to tell, what not to tell? Well, um, usually I sit down after um, we come up with an idea and I'll create uh, maybe 45 or 50 potential chapters. Um, in this one there, there were a few things that hit the floor. We wanted to, we wanted to tell the story of the uh, Pittsburgh Spirit, our, our indoor arena team, which um, the DeBartolo family actually um, at one time was trying to make a decision between keeping the Penguins and keeping the Spirit. They were that popular. Mm. Um, you know, we wanted to tell the story of uh, Duquesne in the, in the early uh, 1970s when they were still a top 10 uh, uh, program, but they kept losing in the first round, and we decided uh, that last uh, last appearance in 1977 probably meant a lot more to the current Duquesne fans since it was their last appearance in the NCAA. So that hit the um, hit the floor, and there there was just so many uh, the Carnegie Mellon great uh, uh, Division three football teams of the era. Um, uh, again, they never quite made it. They they made it as far as a semifinal in Division Three, but not quite to a championship. So uh, there were just a lot of stories we wanted to tell, but um, we did have a um, 
uh, limit uh, that the publisher kind of kept us to. They let us go a little further than than uh, most of their books because of the interest of the subject, but um, there's just so much more we could have talked about. Let's talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates during the 1970s. Who were the key people and for and that built the Pittsburgh Pirates into such a great team in, during the 1970s? Who were the key guys who built that team? Well, Joe, Joe O'Brown, the general manager, uh, was was probably the key guy. He had uh, he'd come along in the um, in the late 1950s and hired his friend uh, Danny Murtaugh in 1957. Um, after Bobby Bragan just couldn't get the young collection moving, uh, uh, Danny seemed to find the buttons to push on, on uh, the young players. Two years later, um, uh, they won the world championship in 1960. But what um, the unique thing that Joel Brown did is he went into Latin America heavily. Mm. Um, many franchises had just, you know, scratched the surface there, but but Joel realized the talent that was down there and and. Uh, like the Brooklyn Dodgers succeeded because they, they hit the Negro Leagues uh, harder than any other franchise. Um, the Pittsburgh Pirates in the in the late 60s and early 1970s um, became a championship squad because uh, Joel Brown uh, used Latin America to farm the best talent uh, of any franchise in baseball. What was it like working in collaboration with Tom and Tim Rooney? Uh, Tom is is such a great guy. We had, um, we're both Duquesne uh, alums, and um, we had met because I had written a book on our national championship team in 1955, and he, he read it and, and liked it and wanted to meet me. So uh, we had lunch, we talked, and we've collaborated on seven or eight books since. Um, Tim uh, is just a great, knowledgeable guy. I really uh, hadn't known him uh, at all before that, um, but he just brings a level of inside um, information uh, as he was part of the Steeler front office during the 70s that just made this book kind of special. It's talking about the 1974 um, Steeler draft in which four of the first five picks ended up being Hall of Famers, uh, which yeah. no team in, in professional sports and major sports in, uh, in any of the North American major sports has ever accomplished. Now, Tom and Tim are the sons of which of the Rooney sons of Art Rooney Sr.? They are, um, uh, they, they are nephews to Art Rooney uh, Sr. Um, boy, I forget the father's name, but uh, they are nephews. Uh, uh, or the chief was their uncle. Okay. Was it Dan or was it Art Jr.? Um, Art, Art Jr. is, uh, is uh, Dan's son. Uh, Dan was the son of um, of the chief. Okay. Um, so he they were they were cousins, first cousins. Okay. Have you had have you ever worked with Frank Garland, and Chris Fletcher before? Because they too are your co-authors for this book. If so, how did you meet them? Chris Fletcher is he's like a brother. Uh, we met at Duquesne in the 1980s, um, and have been uh, best friends pretty much since. And I, I've done several books with Chris. He was the former publisher and editor at. Uh, at Pittsburgh Magazine, and, and actually um, gave me my first shot of writing. He gave me a column at Pittsburgh Magazine in the 1990s. It was a little column, but it, you know, it, it was very important uh, get, getting my juices uh, uh, flowing, so to speak. So uh, wherever I go, Chris is going to go, and um, I'm, I'm glad to have him as a collaborator, no matter what we do. And uh, Frank, 
had um, sent me a letter. He had known we had done a couple of these collaboration books and uh, sent me an email, um, basically introducing himself and and um, uh, asking me if uh, if I ever had the opportunity to utilize him in any of these books, that uh, he'd be very interested. And I, I was aware of him because I had read his uh, autobiography or his biography on uh, on Willie Stargell and really liked it. So I was very happy uh, um, to um, have him as part of the group. This is the second uh, um, second thing he's been with us. I believe uh, the Civic Arena was uh, book was the first, but um, um, this is the second thing. Um, He's done with us, and he's he's just a great writer, and and just has a love of. Even though he had worked in Northern California, came back to Pittsburgh, uh, well, Western Pennsylvania, working uh, um, as a professor at Gannon University in uh, Erie, and uh, has written a book on Willie Stargell and Archie Vaughn, and is just a great historian and writer. So we're we're very happy he's part of the group. Now, this book, Pittsburgh Sports in the 70, doesn't just discuss baseball and football. You really cover it. You and your colleagues really cover the waterfront when it comes to sports. Please tell our listeners, what other sports do you discuss in this book besides baseball and football? And that was a great thing about the 70s. It just went beyond those two. We had so many great golf moments in in the 70s. Um, um, Jim Simons led the U.S. Open. He he was from Butler, uh, uh, PA, which is nearby, and led the U.S. Open in, in golf in 1971 after three rounds, and um, just was an exciting time at, at that point. And amateurs uh, uh, weren't anywhere near the leaderboard in the U.S. Open as they are today, and it was just an amazing run he had. And ended up with a nice, nice career. Died tragically, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, um, had some uh, addiction issues. Oh dear. Um, and, and, and then there was uh, the Johnny Major 63, which is the greatest round of, of golf ever at Oakmont in 73. Uh, John Mahaffey, the great comeback against Tom Watson, blowing uh, probably Tom Watson's uh, uh, best chance at a PGA championship, which has kept him from the grand slam of golf. Uh, we talk about uh, tennis uh, with um, um, the Pittsburgh Triangles, who were the 1975 uh um, world team tennis uh, champion, and they they kind of took Pittsburgh by storm there for a while. And um, of course, the Ryder Cup, uh, strangely enough, came to Ligonier, Pennsylvania, in uh, 1975. Uh, Artie Palmer's great uh, uh, golf club, where he was uh, one of the founders of it. So we we just go on beyond uh, beyond those um, uh, basic sports, and we we try to give the whole. Um, damn it, uh, Bruno San Martino retook his, his title of uh, 1973. Uh, so um, we try to cover it all. Out of curiosity, yeah. who played for the Pittsburgh Triangles in World Team Tennis? I'm kind of curious if you don't mind me asking. Not at all. Uh, they were led by two heartthrobs, so to speak, for the guys. There was Yvonne Bulagon, who was the uh, Wimbledon champion. Um, and it won many, uh, many majors. She was number one in, in the in the uh, tennis world in, in the early 70s. And um, there was Vitas Gerulaitis, who was just uh, getting his start um, at, at tennis at that point in time. He, he eventually uh, uh, won some doubles uh, majors uh, in his career. And um, there was Ken Rosewell, who was our first coach uh, the year before they won the title, who, who had won uh, several majors. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of talent there. Would you say, David, would you and your colleagues believe, 
agree, was the death of Roberto Clemente the greatest sports tragedy in Pittsburgh history? Yes or no? No, we say it's about to was. Um, you know, the guy is, is probably the greatest citizen of, of Pittsburgh. And it, it, anybody who was around at that point, including myself, just gets choked up, um, you know, when they talk about it. Um, you know, a man who who was beyond just a baseball player, uh, um, getting into a, not the greatest aircraft in the world because uh, he believed um, there was a, a horrible earthquake in Nicaragua and the people, um, there was a, a civil war going on there and the people who were in control were taking the supplies that was being sent there. Yeah. And he thought, um, you know, if I go there, I'm going to get the supplies to the people that, that need it. I mean, my estimation has always been that had, he, had the plane made it, he probably would have been shot um, trying to be bold, go boldly past these people. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was, it was a heroic mission. And, and still today on um, uh, New Year's Eve at his statue at PNC Park, you'll see many, uh, many flowers thrown at it in, in remembrance of, of Clemente over um, at 50 years. It was 50 years this year. Yeah. Was the Immaculate Reception, in your opinion, you and your colleague's opinion, was the Immaculate Reception the greatest sports miracle in Pittsburgh sports history? Well, without a doubt. Um, you know, pe people who were around at that point, um, I mean, the newer generations don't quite grasp how bad the Steelers were. It was the embarrassment of the NFL for most of their uh, first 40 years. In fact, if social media had been as big a thing as it is now, Art Rooney would have been considered the Bob Nutting of his era, um, yeah. as far as the disdain from Pittsburgh fans. And, and just to see it, uh, um, you know, you're, you're about to lose a, a game. In fact, we tell the story. Both Chris and I were there uh, separately um, as, as kids. And uh, we tell the story of Chris, who stayed to watch the game, and myself, my dad, who was a, sore, a bit of a sore loser. He got mad when Kenny Stabler scored the touchdown, and he, he was uh, not a fan of traffic, so he turned to my brother and I and said, eh, same old Steelers, let's get out of here and beat traffic. So uh, we were actually on, on uh, the ramp to gate C um, when we heard the roar. So uh, we, we missed it, because games back then were blacked out, uh, and you didn't see it till the replay the next day. Oh, um, man. But then, so we, yeah. We, we tell a fun story like that in the book. Um, yeah. Well, didn't Art Rooney Sr., he missed it, too. He thought it was over. He was in the elevator. When they reached the thing, he heard the roar, too. So he missed that moment. <laughs> Absolutely, he did, which, which kind of made, made us feel a little better. In, your, in you and your colleagues' opinion, who do you believe was the unsung hero of the Steelers during the 1970s, in your opinion? There were a few. There was um, Ernie Holmes, who uh, had a troubled life, but... Uh, Chuck Noel often said he was the best uh, talent uh, on the defensive line, including Joe Green. Wow. Um, he probably would have been one. But to me, Andy Russell, um, who I think deserves in the Hall of Fame, but has not been afforded that uh, that honor. Um, to me, he was he was a link between the bad Steeler teams and the and the Super Bowl teams. He was he was the first of the dynasty group that was drafted in, in 1963. Yeah. And um, I, I think he, he he was the one that held those first uh, Super Bowl teams together. Okay. In your opinion, who was the unsung hero of the Pirates during the 70s? Um, there were probably a couple. Uh, you know, Dave Justy, um, people forget he was uh, 
you know, a, a closer on the line of, of War Face and Kent Calvi in the early 1970s, a former starter for St. Louis and Houston. Uh, Danny Murtaugh put him in the role of uh, a closer at that point. I mean, they pitched two and three innings. Um, but um, he had 31 saves in 1971 and was a huge help. Um, but there were a few. There was Ramon Hernandez, a lefty out of the pen. Um, in the first half of the decade and, and really gave uh, uh, Pittsburgh a, a great, great uh, other option out of the bullpen. Um, Grant Jackson, Mike Eastler, Bill, Bill Robinson, a lot, of, a lot of so-called role players who the Pirates just don't win if they're, if they're not on the roster. Now, Dave, please give our listeners a, a one example of a lesser-known Pittsburgh sports hero or a moment which is featured in this book because you alluded to one uh, Simons, who won, uh, who was that amateur who was who was really competitive that U.S. Open. Can you give me another example, a lesser-known Pittsburgh sports hero? Well, um, I, we'll, we'll go with the team um, because this this was this was a real. In fact, this was this was a story that wasn't there at the beginning, and uh, the more I looked into it, the more I thought it deserved to be there. And that was that was a nearby school called Westminster College. Mm who were in the NAIA, and the story is titled The Tradition, and it just tells of this, this small school that ended up uh, uh, winning uh, back-to-back uh, championships in 66 and, or 76 and 77, and they pulled off the feet again in the 80s and, and won again in, in the 90s. Um, so they, they ended up with two Hall of Fame coaches, and uh, that are in the College Football Hall of Fame, and it, it's just a it's, a, it's a great story that kind of got lost in time, especially when, you know, you're talking about the great pit teams uh, kind of uh, um, overriding the college football team, uh, uh, headlines in those days. Can you name those coaches? Out of curiosity, who are those coaches? Would you please name them, please? Uh, sure. Sure. The one is uh, Matt Fusco, and uh, let me look up the other one is uh, kind of escaping me right now. Okay. Um, but uh, Fusco was was the guy who was there in the uh, he didn't build the uh, the program so to speak, but he was there in the late um, um, late 1970s um, to uh, take him to that uh, um, time period. And uh, uh, let me look this up real quick here. And the name was Harold Burry. That was his name. He was uh, he was the guy that built uh, the program, so to speak. Okay. Um, but um, Fusco was one of his uh, uh, one of his uh, people who played for him, and then uh, uh, got his uh, teeth wet in uh, in high school um, uh, sports in the or coaching in the area, and came back as an assistant. And when uh, when Burry uh, uh, retired, he he was the one who took over and took him to even greater heights. And they're both uh, members of the College Football Hall of Fame. David, please tell our listeners where can they find this book. Right now, they can find it on Amazon to pre-order it. It's it's due out end of August, uh, early September. Um, at that point in time, we'll be able to find it in just about any local uh, bookstore, Barnes and Noble included. I know you asked me to ask you this question, but what will be your next book project? What's it about, and when can we expect its release? Uh, so this is one that uh, has always uh, always been something I've wanted to, to push forward with. Um, in 1910, Pitt had a football team that uh, um, 
that was undefeated and unscored upon. They mm-hmm. outscored their opponents 282 to zero. Wow. Um, and they had a coach by the name of Joe Thompson. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who was, he was, he was a good coach. He, he had, uh, he had uh, played for Geneva, and then when Pitt decided to get serious at football in 1904, um, they bought him and, and several other uh, star players and went from one of the worst teams in the country to uh, undefeated in 1904. Um, so he was called upon in 1909 to uh, take over the program when they were looking for a head coach. And in 1910, he, he leads them. Now, this guy eventually becomes a state senator in, in the Pennsylvania State uh, um, Assembly and then goes on to be this incredible um World War Two, he World War One hero. He gets injured four times, but he won't leave his his um, his his men to get uh, to get fixed, and then he gets gassed, um, which eventually causes his death uh, eleven years later with the damage it had done to his heart. Yeah. Um, so I mean, here, here's a guy that's just unbelievable outside the gridiron, but he he molds this team, and they end up when they start picking retroactive uh, national champions because of course they didn't pick him at that point. You know, several people had picked this team as a national champion. And I never understood why the university recognized others, but not this team. So we, we kind of delve into that on top of um, uh, on top of this incredible team. But the story is just uh, amazing um, as, I, as I get into it. These are the things I just love because you go into it. Like when I read a book on the Pirates and Steelers, I, I know most of the story before. Yeah. Um, before I go in, and you're you're just checking facts at that point. You know this. I, I don't know what the chapter's going to end up like because everything is a new twist and turn. Wow. Uh, as, as I'm doing the research, and I, you know, you just get hooked on it. I mean, I, I did ten thousand words in a weekend, which is, you know, me pretty much doing nothing else but writing. Wow. Um, but um, it'll be out in November. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, David, getting back to pit football, I'm kind of curious because, you know, after this Joe Thompson, I know like in the mid 1910s, Glenn Pop Warner was coaching Pitt, and for like three consecutive years, they were absolutely perfect. I, I mean, I wouldn't say unscored upon, but I mean, retroactively, I think two or three times they were named national champion. Have you ever written about those, uh, that, that period, you know, at Pitt University? That actually is, is going to be my next um, uh, one of my next endeavors. Um, yeah. I, I had written about them last year. I, I finally got the chance to write about Pitt in the 1970s, yeah. um, leading up to their national championship. Before that, I had written about the Jock Sutherland era. Yeah. So this is going to be uh, uh, kind of the third in the um, in the uh, uh, thing that I want to write about because Pop Warner comes in in 1915 yeah and he wins 30 consecutive games to start his career so yeah. he's 30 and 0 as, as a pick coach he wins in 1915 and 16 uh just misses in 17 and then in 1918 um in the midst of, of the uh spanish flu and uh and world war one they play an abbreviated uh five game schedule but they go against georgia tech who's considered the dominant team of the time period yeah and they're expecting everybody expects them to crush Pitt, and Pitt just levels them. Yeah, I mean they they were beating teams 80s and 90s to nothing. Yeah, um, and, and Pitt just levels them, and then wins the national championship in in 1918. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Jack Sutherland is one of um, one of his players, and yeah. he turned him from a, a soccer player into an All-American football player, and then 
uh, the greatest, to me, the greatest coach in uh, in uh, Pittsburgh uh, sports history, over Chuck Noll, over Bill Cower, over all of them. I mean, yeah. Nobody is better than uh, uh, than Jock Sutherland. So yeah, this that's 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 on the short thing. The reason 1910 was ahead of it is it, this is going to be a, a series of books I'm going to do. It's called Lost Legends of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, where I try to focus on um, uh, books a little shorter than my normal book, but focus on on teams that that people have forgotten about who deserve um, the recognition um, because of their greatness. I mean, this 1910 team could be in the argument of greatest pit teams ever assembled. Yes, yes. And when that comes out, I want again, I want you back because I'm really looking forward to that because, I mean, Glenn Pop, I mean, I featured him in my third book, you know, Lords of the Gridiron, college football's greatest coaches. I mean, he's high up there in that pantheon. And that was one of sure. his, I mean, he had just left Carlisle where he was coaching Jim yeah. Thorpe and, you know, and he, you know, lands right on his feet with Pitt. And then, you know, he left Pitt and went, or led, went to Stanford too, you know, yeah. led them yeah, to the 24 up, Rose Bowl. Ends up, uh, I was going to say, ends up beating uh, Pitt in 28 or 29, uh, seven to six in, in, a, in a game that, uh, um, was one of the closest Rose Bowls. They ended up getting smacked around by USC the next two Rose Bowls before they beat uh, Washington 21 to nothing in 37. That's right. David, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. And yeah, keep me apprised on when your your future book releases, okay? You got it. Thank you so much. Always an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. You take care. May God bless you and your family always. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show, which will be this Thursday, where I will be interviewing Rich Melter. Thank you and good night.